We have a special double bonus episode this week. So now you're going to get this great uh, episode, your weekly episode. We have a, a, a bonus coming behind this. So it's a super great week for uptime. Uh, we're going to talk about RWE selecting Siemens Gamesa for the Thor wind farm. Now, isn't that the coolest name for a wind farm, Thor? <laughs> and why does America have some cool offshore wind turbine names? And Rosemary? And then we're going to talk about Vestas who are claiming that they're going to stop at 15 megawatts for their offshore wind turbine, whilst at the same time, Mingyang is already pushing out to 18 megawatts. So in, in Switzerland, uh, we're going to visit some later laser-guided lightning. Uh, we've seen this float around LinkedIn quite a bit uh, where they're firing lasers to, to get lightning to track down the laser. Um, and Alan will kind of give us a brief overview of why he does or does not think that it's commercially viable for wind turbines. Uh, and then uh, jumping into a little bit of a review of GE's finances from the fourth quarter, what we think they mean. Uh, and then a uh, Bloomberg article about wind turbines taller than the Statue of Liberty falling over, uh, wanting to understand what that means for the global market. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and soon to be guest host of the fully charged live event in Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. RDBE has chosen Siemens Gamesa 14-236DD offshore wind turbines. God, I love that name. And they're sticking with it, Joel. They have not changed the name of their wind turbines. And I can't figure out if someone hasn't like told them. But all right. <laughs> That's they're the king of it. it. So Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the RWE has chosen them for the Thor wind farm in the Danish North Sea. And the Thor farm will be uh, Denmark's largest offshore wind farm at roughly one gigawatt capacity once it's completed. So those Siemens Gamesa turbines are using their patented integral blades. So it's all one piece, cast as one piece, Rosemary. I don't know if LM ever tried that, but Siemens is doing it. And they're 115 meters in length. Now, uh, back to some earlier Joel points about these service contracts. They did sign a PSA for the 72 turbines which I'm, I'm sure is a pretty good moneymaker uh, for Siemens. Now, the, the real trick is they're going to have this whole site completed by 2027. That's pretty fast based on what the, some of the schedules are in America. Do the Danish know how to build wind turbines in the water better than America, I guess? That's what it looks like. <laughs> I, I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> Those turbines They've done are fast. it before, right? How many have you got in America? No, like just Five. a couple. Oh, seven. Right? Sorry, seven. Seven. Yeah. So <laughs> easy answer to that one. More yes. Than... Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the kicker is, you know, Siemens Siemens Gamesa um, won that patent dispute with GE, and I wonder if this is part of the fallout of that. Is there's they're starting to win some of these contracts just because they've got GE's hands tied for the moment. But I mean, it is it is Scandinavia, so that would be yeah. I don't know more. I guess of a Vestas or Siemens type area. I know it was a big deal when GE started making deals in um, 
in Sweden, that was a, a super big deal for them to to break into that market. So is there, there's not a lot of service history on the, the 14 megawatt machines from uh, Siemens Gamesa. That seems to be a big discussion around the world as, as these machines get bigger, especially when they cross a 10 megawatt size, that they just don't have a lot of history with them. Is that a concern at this point? Like what, and what do you do to, to hedge your bets? I think it's got, it definitely has to be a concern, right? So the, if they, it's just like signing a contract on a car to maintain it when you've, there's no experience of the model in sight, right? Um, so I think when, you talk, when you're talking offshore um, in the North Sea, these companies have quite a bit of experience out there, right? So I think you can eliminate. So if you, we're talking hedging bets, you, say, you, you have the knowledge of operating out yeah. there. That's great. So you, you've got the SOVs, you've got those kind of things taken. And that's some of the big risk out there is understanding logistics and those kind of things. So that's that's understand understood. Now, this 14236DD machine has been, there's been one installed on shore for, I think, almost right. two years onshore. now. Right, um, in S Yes, in Esberg. So you have the, the piece of it offshore, and then you have the, the, the one model that's been running. So understanding... I mean, now, granted, small sample size, right? So statistically, that really doesn't mean anything. Uh, but you have you've you've figured out how to do oil changes. You figured out how to do these things. We don't we don't know what uh, issues might pop up with the blades. Of course, that's a big one when you get going to 115 meter blades out there. Um, so hedging bets. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, some of the other things we're looking at, say, competitors to Siemens Vesta is looking at 600 to. $1.2 billion in, in possible slush fund for issues and warranty issues that pop up. So maybe you're, maybe you're getting reinsurance against your own stuff. I'm not sure. Uh, to me, it's, it's kind of a scary, uh, now, why did, it, did the Danish get the best names for the wind farms? Like how did America miss out on that? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, they're Vikings, man. Yeah. They I mean, that's, naming a Thor is not a bad way to go. How can you lose? That's the coolest name around. I worked Everybody with a, wants to be working on that farm. I worked a lot with a guy called Tor in Denmark, and I thought it was the coolest. Considered considered it as a name that's, for my son, but I had to rule it out because of the pronunciation <laughs> challenges between Scandinavia and Australia. Yeah, I, I struggle with that over there. So, or used to quite a bit. Uh, I met a guy over there named uh, Maunus, but in a, in my American dialect, yeah. I kind of called him Magnus. That's another for like one six that had months. to get rolled out for the same reason. Until he finally was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until he finally was like, uh, "Hey, man, that's not my name." So, do we have to start naming the wind farms in America something cooler, like Batman, Superman, <laughs> uh, Captain, Captain America? America. <laughs> Captain America Wind Farm would be pretty. Cool. It would. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I would totally that. trust you guys to actually do it too. And it would be an acronym. <laughs> yeah. It would. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, getting back to uh, offshore wind, uh, the head of Vestas, uh, Henrik Anderson, uh, said in a, in a couple of uh, interviews that Vestas is going to stop at 15 megawatts offshore, that they think the 15 megawatts is a bigger machine they want to deal with. They want to sure, make sure that the quality and the durability are in so those 15 megawatts, and if they continue to make wind turbines that are larger, they're just going more into the unknown. There's a lot more risk, and they just thought, we're done. And But at the same time, 
Vestas clearly knows that they're going to be at risk from all the Chinese manufacturers of just really falling behind. The GEs and the Siemens Gamesas are not really going to stop. So is this a smart move by Vestas at this point, just to hold at 15 megawatts and just maybe see where the marketplace goes? I don't know. I don't believe it. They they might say that they're going to stop, just, but yeah. what are they yeah, what exactly. are they going to do when the market's demanding more than that? Like, oh, okay, well, we won't sell wind turbines anymore. You know, like they don't get a choice about well, what people want to buy. If yeah. other people are offering a bigger turbine and it works out cheaper on a per project cost, then they yeah. can choose to stop at fifteen megawatts and choose to not make sales. That doesn't, you know, yeah, it doesn't sound like good business practice yeah, the mar- to the me. Yeah, the market will run them right out. Yeah. I mean, well, as much as there's huge technical yeah. risks with going big and, you know, we are seeing more failures and so investors could avoid all that, but, um, y- you know, you can only survive so long without sales. So unless their plan is that they let everybody else make these, you know, 20 megawatt sales and it bankrupts every other competitor and then <laughs> then they can, you know, have have every 15 megawatt sale themselves because they're the only company left standing. But um, I think that's a pretty risky, risky strategy. Can they wait it out? You know, the five or ten years that would be the minimum that it would would take. And I, yeah, it goes against what we talk about. Yeah, Joel, what's the what's the step between quality of product versus in service life versus uh, cheaper installation? I would, Where, where's that lie? I would love to see. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see Vesta say, you know what, for now. We're stopping at 15 megawatts until we can get a proven next step. Because what we talk about on the program all the time is the issues that we see in the marketplace with innovation cycles being too fast. Yeah. Right? Like there's this model gets put on, that model gets put on, these blades are falling over, and this generator's crashing out and whatnot because they're going they're not actually getting enough testing time with all these different things. So if they said, hey, until 2028, we're not we're only doing 15 megawatts, that seems more realistic to me. And I actually like the I would like that approach. Mm. To say, yeah, we're, we may work on a bigger one at some point in time, but we're going to get a couple of years of experience with it before we put it out in the market. Like that's kind of one of the things that we're, as an industry, asking for. You know, so everybody wants the newest, mm-hmm. greatest, best thing until it starts to. Yeah, get back I mean, in the it face. might be a good right. So uh, this is a, this was it a topic might be a good some- marketing strategy if Vestas had this reputation for more reliable uh, equipment than their competitors. But, I mean, at least as far as I'm aware, Vestas isn't, you know, standing apart as the higher quality product at the moment. They've got just as as many problems as everyone else, yeah. don't they? What do you guys think? Yeah, if they, if they talked about the, v, the V90, then we would be great. That was a great platform. Now, that one just works. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, in general, um, there, there's no there's no top tier, right? I, I guess I take that back. I say that the one thing I have heard in the marketplace is an Enercon turbine is a little bit of a step above some of the others. Especially from um, service technicians always tell me how much they love to work in Enercon turbines. They say it's like, it's like uh, working in a Mercedes or something. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I, I think that saying that that's all they're going to do, um, it's just it just can't be true for one. Um, but I don't know, maybe there's there's some tactic behind it, maybe some strategy behind it. So if you remember several years ago when Airbus built the A380, which is the double decker, massive, I don't know, it's yeah. like four hundred people, six hundred people, some mm-hmm. crazy numbers, right? They kind of got goaded into that by Boeing. That Boeing. Faked out the, the the word on the street is that 
Boeing threw out some ideas about some uh, 747 that was where the hump had been stretched. And so they had this like double decker, uh, full double decker 747 that was being bantied around. And they felt like all the hubbub and the discussion and all the nuances uh, that Boeing was going to do this made Airbus jump into the the 380. And then Boeing didn't make that airplane they made the 787 instead which is a much smaller airplane uh so there is a little bit of corporate espionage i'd call it or trickery that that is played at a very high level and that you wonder if this is something that vestas is talking about is like hey we're going to stop here but in the back rooms back here in the corner i have a bunch of engineers working on a 25 megawatt machine okay right yeah. uh, and, and maybe that's what's happening it, it wouldn't be the first time there's big stakes. This yeah. is this is uh, high stakes poker right now, and you see some of the bigger players playing it at a at the highest level possible. Us on the sidelines don't know all the inner details, but I, Rosemary's probably right. They probably can't stop here. No, but so we'll see how everybody else reacts to that. I've got one more question for you guys on this one. So uh, yeah. the last bu- the last bullet point here in our notes, we're talking about. Uh, Chinese manufacturers and possibly SDRE or GE building yep. larger ones. At what level, if the if the if a Chinese manufacturer say Mingyang has the eighteen megawatt machine out now, if they come out and say right. we've Post. got one eighteen megawatts, what cost does that one have to be less than a European built turbine for someone to actually pull the trigger on installing those in Western waters? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I I don't know. That turbine doesn't exist yet, and they're definitely. Um, I mean, even the the company doesn't have a really long track record of reliable operation in um, you know in Europe or North America at least. And so, I think that they would be competing on things other than than just price there. Um, but I mean, at, at some point, it, it is going to come down to that. But I think at the moment. There's such a, you know, like a, a rush to install wind turbines, such a backlog um, of orders and supply chain problems and everything that I think that everything that gets made is going to sell at the moment. Um, so I, I think it's probably a, a good time to be, <laughs> to be taking a, a, a strategy, a risky strategy like that, because I think... I mean, I don't think that the yeah, turbines are just going to sit around um, over the next 10 years. I mean, everybody's got 20, 30, you know, intermediate targets on the way to net zero and they're going to need every wind turbine that can possibly be made up until then. So I think you'd have to really come up with a, a shocker to um, have a, you know, a turbine not sell at all if, if you could make it and supply it at a yeah right. reasonably competitive yeah, cost. One of the things we looked at uh, a couple of months ago was it, some of the Chinese turbines coming in at about 30% of the cost of the European built ones. And that's still yeah. kind of quite wasn't enough to move the, to move the dial yet, but uh, I think the time will come. 30% less than the European. 70% less, 30% of what? the cost. Yeah, yeah. It was like 300,000 yeah. 300, a megawatt versus a million a megawatt. Wow, I hadn't seen those numbers, and and that's not that's not enough. The perception of difference in quality is so great that they would rather have would one be. European turbine than three um, Chinese ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that seems to be and, the way they're going. 
Do you happen to know, Joel, since you're the expert on this topic, according to me, um, do you happen to know, are there quality, um, are there quality, you know, statistics out there that would back that up? Or is that just snobbery, um, Western snobbery? I think if, if Western snobbery, I haven't seen it. Well, like I, I don't have, we don't have the experience in it. I know from the wind power lab side, I haven't, I don't know anybody directly involved with maintaining or operating a Chinese turbine personally. Yeah, no, me neither. But I mean, I, I do have experience with um, a lot of stuff that's been made in Chinese factories and I know that there's no difference in, in quality out of the you know European owned Chinese factories or American owned Chinese factories, so yeah, I couldn't. I it's mind blowing to me that there could be such a difference. You you know have um, I sell a product for triple the price because of reputation if there wasn't you know hard data behind it. That's um, yeah very surprising to me. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Well, if you've watched any of Buck Rogers comic or seen any Buck Rogers comics or watched any <laughs> James Bond movies, right? You, you see that lasers uh, can do miraculous things. Well, uh, up in Switzerland, they've been using lasers to trigger lightning strikes. Now, it, that doesn't seem obvious on its face, like how do lasers trigger lightning strikes? Well, these lasers are, are terawatt lasers, so there's, they're really powerful lasers, and they're pulsing really, really fast, fast enough that they ionize the air. They actually break down the air, superheat the air to where it becomes conductive. So they're knocking electrons off of air molecules, and uh, everything becomes happy and somewhat conductive. And so the little trick here is up in Switzerland, uh, there's a Santis mountain. I'm going to butcher the name. Santis is the way I pronounce it. But there's a Swiss mountain called Santis, which has been a research facility for lightning forever. Uh, and they have all the instrumentation, all the cool stuff up there. They also have a tower that's instrumented so they can record all the lightning parameters around a particular strike. So what they did is they took uh, this terawatt power laser they put it next to this lightning tower and they fire this laser up in the air now mind you they closed down the airspace so they didn't shoot down an airplane or anything <laughs> so they closed the airspace off shot this laser up there when there was a thunderstorm around and triggered lightning four separate times now that's interesting because it hasn't really been done before outside in the real world they use lasers inside the laboratory and for 20 plus years to uh, trigger electrical breakdowns. But out in the real world, there haven't been any known triggered strikes. So they could actually trigger a strike. Uh, and then, you know, as soon as that happened, and, and there's an article published in Nature, I think it was in Nature, the internet exploded about it. <laughs> so <laughs> everywhere it's like, hey, they got this cool new thing. Maybe we can use it on a wind turbine. Rosemary, all, all the lightning protection on a wind turbine could come off or we could use it on a building or something to trigger lightning or around rocket uh, launch facilities like Cape Canaveral. Yeah, sure. It sounds much much simpler than just running a cable down, down the blade, doesn't it? You just have a, a terawatt-scale laser pointing next to every every turbine. That sounds cheap and, and reliable. Right. 
and, and power. <laughs> well, that's and, that's like, the trick, right? Power efficient, right? If you're making, you're only making uh, megawatts of power, and then you're going to shoot terawatt lasers. There's a zero sum game here somewhere. Yeah, it's a little tricky. I mean, the the, the technology is interesting, and it may have some applications because we can use it to uh, see inside of of clouds. Basically, we can learn more about what electrical activity is happening in the cloud by triggering lightning strikes. We already have a way to do that right now, which is rocket trigger lightning. Which those experiments have been happening down in Florida, twenty well longer than that, probably forty years. and other places around the world. So what you do, instead of firing a laser up, you just take a little Estes rocket and you put a spool of wire behind it and you just shoot it up into the sky when there's a thunderstorm and blammo, there's there's a lightning strike. Uh, so there are cheaper ways to trigger a lightning. I guess the question is, is the industry, is the wind industry looking at alternatives? Is that something that they would even blink at? I, I think that the industry is so in the mode of where they're at, which is what Rosemary's talking about, putting a cable inside the wind turbine blade, that they would not consider any other technology because of the cost. Go, going back to Joel's point, just because of the cost. Yeah, if the cost yeah, potential, if the cost saving potential isn't there, then you wouldn't bother pursuing it. All of these ideas sound like the kind of idea that we would talk about in the, you know, in the canteen at, um, you know, wind wind energy company. But would you? Progressive. I mean, I think it's pretty telling if uh, right. you're literally saying a cheaper a cheaper option would be to fire rockets into the sky. And you know, <laughs> I think that that might be an indication that your technology is too expensive. Um, yeah. So I think I think probably not. The, these things the the work is cool. I mean, for the reasons that you say, like it's great to le- learn more about lightning and that's definitely needed for right. um, wind, yes. wind turbine blade lightning protection design. We need to understand lightning better so that we are more confident about how a lightning protection system is going to behave in the field, um, you know, before it gets out there because it's such a, such a problem. I mean, we were talking before about um, how fast technology is moving and, you know, you've got one prototype turbine that's been operating for a year or two and that's not enough. Well, you know, you just consider right. how many times that turbine has been struck by lightning and it's <laughs> in its experience, um, it, you know, it may well have been struck uh, once or, or twice in its um, test year, but certainly that's not enough to make sure it's going to withstand every single type of lightning that you're going to experience around the world to know what it's going to behave like when, you know, materials aren't brand new anymore, because obviously, um, you know, there's a difference in how materials conduct or um, insulate when they're brand new versus when they've got, you know, little micro damage through them, like a a wind turbine gets after it's been, you know, flexing around (laughs) a few thousand times. Right. Mm. Well, I, I, I look at it this way, because there's similar experiments going on with airplanes at the moment. There's, I won't name the research institute that's looking at this, but there, there's been some recent articles about uh, instrumenting aircraft so that they're struck by not struck by lightning, or maybe struck by lightning less. It's interesting from a researcher standpoint, but if I'm making an airplane or am I making a wind turbine, what am I going to do different? Probably nothing, because if the system doesn't work or that one of a thousand lightning strikes hits my wind turbine slash or my airplane, it's still going to be bad. I'm still going to put all the lightning protection back into the product anyway. So the this cool lightning triggering device on airplanes and wind turbines is just dead weight in, in a sense. 
it doesn't change the way you would design a product. And I think that's where everybody gets stuck at. Like, okay, I implement this really cool laser idea. Do I take all the lightning protection out of the wind turbine blades? Probably not. Because it only takes one lightning strike, then I'm I'm down. I, I've just destroyed a turbine. It's not worth it. I think that's the real trade-off at the end of the day is that you're still stuck with the technology that you have and because it works at least at least decently well. <laughs> yeah, right now it's just a it's a research experiment, right? And it's cool. Uh, something yeah, different different may come out of it along the lines, right? Like we we've talked about many yeah. times here is that we need to have people doing this this smart kind of research to to spur on innovation yes. in other other sectors, and you know it's the same way that technology from an F one race team makes it into your car eventually, uh, but yeah. For right now, it's just kind of like a, a non-start. Like you could go more practical if you want to get something instead of uh, instead of this, put a 500 meter tower in the middle of the wind farm that's just about 100 meters taller than the rest of them. Yeah, yeah. Even that is spotty. <laughs> that's what they right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, even when they try to put spotty, yeah. Does that make, does that make sense? I, I think that's that's the, the logic I use with it. Is would I change what I'm doing right now? I think the answer is generally no. Uh, but I could I could be convinced. And the the other little bit to this I think is just just there. Um, I'll go to the rosemary point. Until you actually work in industry, understand all the little nuances to why a design is the way that it is. As a researcher, you don't you're not really plugged into that too much. So it looks like look I could do this really cool thing and maybe make an impact in this renewable energy field, which would be great. That'd be fantastic. But they're not really plugged into the lunchroom situation like Rosemary right. is, where they're all sitting around talking about why they designed everything the way that they do it. And if, if the researchers were in that mode, were in that space, and were learning those things, I'm not sure they'd be doing some of these experiments. That's my thought. Because there's so many things that we could be doing in the lightning space at the moment that we're not doing, just because there's a disconnect between the on the ground in the factory engineers and the researchers in the universities and laboratories across the world. Uh, so GE Renewables uh, had a big meeting while well, GE and, and Total had a, their uh, quarterly results published and they broke out renewable energy. So you can see some of the details inside the renewables wind turbine business for, for GE. And 2022 is, it would be a year to probably forget because it lost a little over $2 billion in that portion of the business. And everything was down. I was, Joel, I was going through all the numbers here. Uh, if you look at 2022, they sold a little over 2,100 turbines and they had 2,200 turbines ordered. Those are decent numbers. But in perspective, uh, that was down over 25% versus 2021 in orders and sales for new turbines. It, it was just crazy down a lot and but repowering weirdly enough was fairly uh, were stable somewhat uh in terms of sales orders were down for repower by about 50 percent which is odd because you think gee so makes really sense. into the repowering business right i mean that's a it's got to be a sweet spot for them yeah. uh so we got the, the clock is ticking right and 2024 is coming pretty quick I, I don't know what the plan is here. If you look at the the um, GE power business, which is the non-renewable portion of GE Vernova, it seems to be doing okay. It's making a little bit of money. 
Um, they obviously have a footprint in the marketplace. They are well known. Uh, they think they're going to be in like uh, single digit uh, growth growth for 2023 in that business. But the boy, the renewable side is not looking so hot. Is this just a, a temporary dip in where GE is going long term? I hope so. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I really hope so. It's odd to me to see some of these numbers after that I, the IRA bill had come out, especially the repower ones, you know, because there's probably a lot of people that are sitting yes. there like, we're running, we're running, we're running. And then I know, but but I also do know this from in, industry knowledge, GE doing repowers can be kind of a pain to deal with. I've heard it from a couple of different people where GE basically says, this is how we're going to do your project. And um, if you don't like that, then we're out. Like they say, this is how we're doing blades. This is how we're doing generators. This is what we're doing for bearings. We're going to run the whole thing. It's going to cost, bam. And if you don't like that, then there's no no uh, leeway. Uh, to me, that's that's a tough way to do business. Um, but, what's driving that, though? What What's the reasoning behind it? You know, I'm not 100% sure. I think... Part of it is a, a controls thing. You know, I've, I've also heard people in the, in the marketplace saying, you know, we have GE controls in our turbines, but they have stuff locked out. Like we can't even get access to them. Um, so it's almost like oh, they really? want to keep, yeah, like they want to keep their, it's like the, you know, um, Ford making special tools that only the Ford technicians can buy to fix your cars kind of thing. Or, you know, John Deere or John Deere tractors and only the, only the John Deere technician can plug into it with his computer. So if you're 10,000 acres away, <laughs> you got to wait for him to get out there to fix it. So it could be some of that driving it. So that's a strategy standpoint, right? Strategy, tech, technology driven by strategy. Um, but 25, I mean, 25%, we know that the wind industry can be kind of cyclical. There's a lot of growth in it, of course, right? But you're seeing, you see numbers up and down, up and down. You don't see, no matter if it's Vestas, Siemens Gamesa, there's never this like nice steady curves, whether they're growth curves or right. flat or they're up, down, up, down, up, down all the time, depending on the geopolitical climate in certain parts of the world and what's happening with offshore wind and onshore wind, and, you know, big bills getting passed over here, uh, it, like the IRA bill or in other places, you know, like um, I know there's talk of opening up the, the southern part of the UK back to onshore wind, which has had a moratorium on it for a while. That'll drive some sales um, if it happens, right? So there's there's all these up down up down left rights. Um, but so if I'm if I'm valuing a company or looking to invest in it and I see twenty five percent drop, that's a tough one to stomach sometimes. Um, oh yeah, the, the numbers got to be a little scary. I'm sure they saw them coming in about June, July or August of yeah. last year. Like ooh, the, the second half of this year is not going to be so hot. Uh, but they have they have at least a little bit of breathing space. That the, the scary part about this from my perspective is when they start singling out a particular part of a particular business, the financial numbers from the remainder of the business, it always gives you that little sinking feeling like there's this little mm -hmm. piece over here that's causing us all this pain. Maybe we can get rid of this piece and sell it off. And then all the remainder will be nice, uh, happy profit margin time. That's disturbing to me as geez, the last remaining U S uh, yeah, wind turbine manufacturer. What the heck, right? Um, how, how many how many people um, lost their positions when they did the the cuts back in December or November? Ooh, you know, yeah, it, it was ten percent. I wasn't like ten percent of the workforce. It was something like that. Was that I mean? Was it, it was like two thousand people? Number. 
Well, yeah, it have to be roughly. Sure. So I mean, so I mean, if you can equate some of that, I mean, some of those are high order engineers. You know, there's there's some there's some yeah there's some heavy salaries in there. I there mean, are, but there's not two billion worth. No, it's two two or two or <laughs> three hundred billion, so. right? Yeah. Uh, so there's yeah. a little bit. There, yeah, there's a little bit. It really comes down to sales, you know, and in some part, it has to be just sales driven. And are they not competitive in the in the marketplace at the moment because of pricing because of liability what's driving all that i think as we're going to discuss here there's some concerns about some of the ge turbines that are out there and and maybe it's just a a perception more than it is a reality and that when a a ge turbine has a problem it gets huge wide notice about across the world and right Am am i wrong about that i don't think so Look at their fleet in the past, right? GE-15s. A GE-15, depending yeah. on what blades on it, was a workhorse. There's tons of them installed. The U.S. is full of those things. So they did really good with those XLEs, SLEs. They did really well with them. And then they went to the 1X, you know, 1.6s, 1.7s, and 8s. Um, but now that they're starting to expand their portfolio to, you know, the Cypress, what are they, 5 megawatts and some of the other ones, um, there's... I don't know if the developers are looking to install those, to be honest with you, right? So there's there's little niches and in, in, in pockets of we're in uh, you know a low wind area or w- the wind resource here is different and some of the better spots have already been picked up for some of these other types of wind turbines sure. and maybe they don't have one that's in that sweet spot right now. I don't know. That would be a technology limitation rather than a, a sales limitation, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. Right, and GE historically wants to be number one or number two in their market space, right? That's that was a mantra way back when I used to work there, and they would if you were number three or four in the marketplace, your little division got sold off, uh, and it's it's that legacy I think still kicks around in the in the upper echelon of GE. I'm sure that it does because the people that are there at those levels were around when I was around. Uh, years ago back in the 90s you don't forget those things those are sort of lessons that get imprinted into your brain that the only place you can make money is if you're the first or second into that marketplace and that that tends to be true but i think ge has a still has a really decent name in the marketplace and not to say decent probably is downgrading it it's good <laughs> make good products yeah. i think a lot of people are very happy with them it's just surprising to see that there's not getting as much traction as i thought that they would uh, especially since they knew in 2021 that 2022 had to be a better year and it didn't really move the needle much. In any of their press releases, do they do they point to anything themselves of that $2.2 billion loss? Or do they just say, we had You know, it's loss. not one thing, right? So it's, it's never one one thing that, that gets you. It's, it's, it's a variety of different factors. You know, war, the economy, inflation, the supply chain, sales group maybe they lost an order that that, you know cascaded into several orders it's hard to say i think it's really hard to say and i think they'll tell you that too every time i've been in discussions about (laughs) here even at weatherguard right um when we start looking at you know why are we at where we're at well it's a a series of probably a hundred different variables that we didn't know about when the year started yeah just what happens as you get a business one that I'm always watching with these, just considering sitting in the space that I do in the marketplace, is what are they looking at for warranty claims and and ongoing costs that are unallocated, um, and that's that's, that's the number question. that I'm looking to see, right? Because 
we're always being asked from the insurance industry and we're like well, which ones to watch out for what's the what's the ones that we should be worried about um so that, that's definitely a yeah. metric we look for lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually it's very predictable and very preventable Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So if you haven't seen it, there's an article on Bloomberg called Wind Turbines Taller Than the Statue of Liberty Are Falling Over. That's, that's a nice headline, right? That's yeah. very uh, search-worthy by Google. Uh, so they had, so the article kind of goes like this. Hey, a wind turbine collapsed in Oklahoma, and it was a GE turbine that was in service less than a year. Okay, And then another turbine collapsed in Colorado a couple of days later, and they blamed the Colorado failure on a blade defect or a blade flaw. And all of a sudden, now there's a rash of wind turbine problems across the U.S. and Europe. Like, uh, no, <laughs> no, but the article continues. Uh, they they talked to G-Cube, which was a major insurer and underwriter, obviously, for wind energy. And what G-Cube was saying is that they're seeing failures happen in a shorter time frame on newer turbines, and they're concerned about it. Well, sure, if I'd insured them, I would be concerned about it, too. Uh, and GE, uh, the CEO, Larry Culp, uh, talked about this a little while ago. It says, it takes time on new products to stabilize the production line and quality. And some of these are just uh, birthing issues. I, I think that's I think that's valid. That seems like a reasonable explanation for some of it. It uh, doesn't make anybody happy. But then they go on to list some other ones. So Siemens Gamesa has had problems with the 5X blades, which everybody knows about. Investus has, has had a number of warranty claims uh, from 2019 on. I think some of those have been related to lightning issues from news articles I've seen. So it's not just a GE thing. It's a Siemens Gamesa issue. It's a Vestas issue. So pretty much everybody has this. Wind turbines are a problem that they're having early defects. Okay. What does this, this all mean? Uh, Joel, I don't think it means anything right now. The industry, the insurance industry, will always adjust to whatever the marketplace is to manage costs, right, and claims. Isn't this just part of the normal cycle of new product developments and in the insurance industry trying to adjust? And it's not like I have to be careful. I, I'm, I'm, I read the article like I should be alarmed, but I, I, I don't think I'm alarmed right now. Yeah, it's it's a combination of a lot of things, but it's kind of a normal, right? So the the yeah. the heavy the heavy appetite, and we'll just start back one. I, I always like this conversation. Say like, who runs the world? And everybody usually says banks. Well, no, it's the insurance companies <laughs> because you cannot insurance companies you cannot finance anything unless it's insured. So the insurance companies eventually control the market. Um, at you know at the when you when you map it all out, that's where it, it's controlled from. So. There was a heavy appetite. Renewable energy, of course, a great great place to, to – it's growing. It hasn't been established yet. Like there's not a lot of times that a, a multi-billion dollar industry comes or trillion dollar industry comes along that you can all of a sudden jump into from an insurance standpoint or, or a whatever standpoint, uh, business in general. So 
the insurance companies had a heavy appetite for getting into it and or have had do um, and are jumping into it full force. So there's a lot of insurance companies in there. G-Cube is not one of them that just kind of is by the seat of their pants, right? They've got a good team of risk engineers, underwriters. <laughs> They're doing their best yeah, to 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 hedge their risks and to understand what they're insuring. But a lot of people are just like, yeah, give me 10% of that wind farm. They have no business being there. Um, so the, the, eventually, yeah, I think that the premiums may correct, but it's also the same thing we talk about here where these innovation cycles and these guys are talking about it, right? The C Siemens is talking about it. Vestas is talking about it. Uh, Larry Culp's talking about it. The market wants the newer, bigger, better stuff all the time. Um, and then that shortens the innovation cycle. So it kind of ties back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode with Vestas saying we're stopping at 15 megawatts. In my mind, if they could do that for a while until they made the next jump to whatever it is uh, and had a proper time for R&D and, um, and that innovation cycle in their next model, that's smart. Um, but what, what's happening here, mm -hmm. you know, they're not wrong. And, you know, we do a lot of RCAs. We, we find manufacturing defects. We find design issues right um in lightning protection systems and we're looking at some other uh, turbines right now that have some actual what looks to be design issues in them um and that's a product of going too fast so well um, th that's a really good point joel and because i, I was going through uh, power and energy solutions magazine from last year right so i've got it sitting on my desk mm -hmm. and i thought okay so what's the what's the issue here is it because the oems do not have a, a decent uh, way of tracking their products out in service. And if I introduce a new wind turbine, say I, I introduce a new 15 megawatt wind turbine to the world and I just start selling them, do I do, am I involved in the um, observation of how well they're doing? Am I involved in the inspection? Because there's an article in, in PES magazine. It's from uh, Tom Solzer, uh, Solzer Schmidt who does drone inspections. Yeah. So they have this really cool 3DX system where they can tag every defect using a really, and Joel, you know more about it than I do, but they, mm -hmm. they can tag every defect and change and track it as an individual chain. So you, the OEMs could actually, in theory, monitor their own product and catch stuff early. That's, that's what I pick out of it, is that they can actually see where an issue uh, pops up maybe in Nebraska uh, before the rest of the fleet sees it and then tell everybody like, Hey, uh, yeah. we need to reinforce this area or we need to watch for these kind of cracks in this area. Is, doesn't that make sense? Like if, is Solzer Schmidt's doing it? Yeah. Like why, if I'm strategy, why wouldn't, if I'm GE, why wouldn't I say, Hey guys, uh, cool product. I'm going to, I'm going to hire you to monitor my new wind turbine. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think absolutely. So, like, um, you know, I know that Solter Schmidt does a, a ton of inspections for Vestas. On Vestas' point, that is a great strategy from a from a um, OEM getting one drone provider to basically cover. And I don't know what Solter Schmidt's contract is like, right? But if you had one drone provider to cover all of your FSAs, right? I know like GE in the U.S. uses Skyspecs. Uh, on a lot of inspections. So if you're, if you, but if you do that with one provider, with one platform, one system, then all of a sudden you can, you can build models and statistics off of this data. But if you're, if you've got 10 different suppliers feeding different things left and right, um, with different AI systems telling you different categorizations, like none of that doesn't work, 
right? It has to be standardized across the board. So if you come on to a, you know, like Vestas, they had to have seen something in Sulter Schmidt that said, these are the guys we want to use. We like their 3DX platform. We like their drone solution. Yeah. Uh, and we like the way their, their uh, assessments work, whether it's with their AI or however. Um, and we want to use this as the base for our, our uh, inspections. Now they have to take that. That's, that's step one, really. They have to take that data and then make actionable right. insights out of it from a, a fleet-wide standpoint. So, you know, there's there's some large manufacturer or large uh, asset owners in the U.S. that do this internally, right? Like Nextera being one of them. They have so many turbines. They're really good at at trying to understand what's going on in the fleet. But they they even they have a limited view. Yeah. Like they may only have, I don't know, you know, a hundred of these type of turbines or four hundred of these type of turbines. They're not they're not Vestas or GE or Siemens that has, you know could have control or could have visibility into all of theirs. So um, go to the next step, right? So the next step is, are they if they're doing this internally, that's great, but are they sharing the data with anybody? Are they doing anything to fix the problems or to solve the problems? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, I hope that they are. And that's the way the aviation industry is set up, actually. And if you think about, if you hop on a new Airbus A321neo, which I happen to be on, which is really Nice airplane. Um, you know, what they do with those airplanes is they do all the load tests and all the things to, to, to pass certification, and then they put the aircraft in service, but it doesn't mean they don't continue to test the airframe and monitor it. And there's a there's a feedback loop that happens there. So in the wind turbine world, we test like Rosemary used to do. They put a blades out in service for a year or so and test them, and then they're out in the world that start selling them. The issue then becomes... What do I continue to do with those blades or do I continue to monitor it? And do I pass that information down? The way that Boeing and Airbus run into this situation is they continue to test and test and test and test while they're selling their product. And if they find a design flaw, they tell everybody because it's a safety issue. At the size of the wind turbines are becoming now, it's a safety issue. Uh, a one megawatt machine, no one really cared too much about, but a 10 megawatt machine, I think everybody starts to care a little bit more. Do they, do the insurance companies, and I think you're right, the insurance companies do kind of rule the world here, but are they connected with the drone companies like Soldier Smith to rule the world saying, hey, we have, we, ha we know everything is happening behind the scenes, Vestas or GE or, or Siemens, Camesa, we know where your, we know where your problems are either pay us or work or the operators are going to pay us or somebody is if they have the best set of data. And I can't believe the insurance companies aren't somehow getting isolated data, like clean data. The gap is that they don't know, you know, it, it, they need to be, so, this is something that we fight in the industry a lot. Not fight. It's something that we're trying to help along, right? So sure. we work on the claim side a lot. That's that's pretty cut and dry. But the that cyclical bit of data from the claim side, and then taking that claims information and getting back with the underwriters and getting back with the brokers, and then and then after that, and the risk engineers, and then after that, involving the insured to say, hey, this is what we're seeing from the claims process. This is what's going to be in your renewal. Uh, next year, as far as the things you need to do, um, let's get together mm. and make sure this is this is proper, uh, so that you're protecting everybody. Because what you you yeah. what you're doing is you're going to keep the up you're going to keep uptime for the asset owner. You're going to lower the uh, the premiums by not having as many failures. 
So the insurance company will make a little bit more money, the asset owner will make a little bit more money, and the industry as a whole uh, can celebrate uh, you know, lower cost of energy and less failures. And that's the way we look at it. Um, but yeah. there's a gap there. It's tough. It's tough to to tie that circle together, um, because at the end of the day, you know, that some of it's driven by profits and whatnot as well. So you really have to run into the right risk engineers and the right underwriters to say, let's let's share the data here. Let's go through things because they're concerned about doing their job, right? They're like I've, I've got to get this policy yeah. written out, and they, they don't necessarily know that. Oh, on this turbine from this manufacturer in this dates, we should be looking at this specific defect in there. And and if they haven't inspected it internally, then we shouldn't put them on risk before we know this. Like they don't, that information isn't always there. And that's where, like one of the things we're trying to help with. Yeah. Does that mean there needs to be a regulatory framework to drive the connection between the data and the insurance companies and the OEMs to close that loop just to force the hand of it? And say, hey, if you have a serial defect, we need we need to know it, and it becomes a safety issue, and we can fine you for it. Which is a thing that is uh, is, and I, and I don't like doing this, but I, I kind of wonder this is where it always ends up because the disconnects will have yeah. to exist. There's, once you have lawyers in the middle of it, <laughs> there are going to be wide chasms between insurance and OEM and operators. Is I would that just the like only to see, way they resolve it. I'd like to see the so the the difficulty is is we have the, you consistently see new players coming into renewable energy insurance and reinsurance. So they're coming yeah. from the yeah. classical energy world. They're coming from the property world. They're coming from all over the place. Every other six months, you see another couple of names. You're like, what are these guys doing in here? You know, um, yeah. which is fine. Go and go and do your thing. Like, but don't expect to not have some heavy losses at chance because. You, you're not doing proper risk engineering on, on what's going on. So I think that if you mm. can get the, the the good underwriters, or the, and I'm not going to say good, but like the ones that hold a lot of the marketplace um, and get some of them on board with making sure that the asset owners and the OEMs are held accountable for what they're doing in the field, um, you might be yeah. able to close that loop from a financial standpoint. So G-Cube is really set up for this, right? I mean, they're one of them. Oh, yeah clearly in position to do this and Solzer Schmitz is one of the drone companies that could be involved in that yep. mix too. It that that just makes logical sense. But we'll see. I, I, I don't yeah, yeah. I don't think it's gonna get resolved this year. Not the way things are no. going at the moment. We'll put the link to the power and energy solutions article on Solzer Schmidt in the show notes so you can see it. You can see what the 3DX system is and get a sense of like how powerful this is to, to find defects and identify them early. Cause I think that's part of the key to getting rid of these turbine collapse issues as we can detect early. Makes a ton of sense to me. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Take a moment and subscribe in the show notes below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. <laughs>